I'm glad to be with you here at the Warehouse Community. And tonight, as we take a few moments in prayer, I want us to take a few moments particularly uh, to focus upon what has happened in Mumbai uh, during this past week. Uh, At least 185 uh, lives that have been lost in a city that has almost never been uh, has experienced that kind of of devastation. Mumbai has always been characterized by a lot of uh, stability within uh, Southeast Asia. And I know that these are days of great loss for those who have lost loved ones, but also of anxiety as people wonder about the future there. The other thing is, um, I just received a couple of emails uh, from friends from Nigeria, and some of the ongoing conflict between uh, Christians and and Muslims, sometimes nominal Christians, maybe nominal Muslims, uh, I'm not sure, but continues to escalate there. And uh, in in a seminary in in the city of Jos, Uh, where a good friend of mine is the president of that seminary, they have just encountered incredible uh, violence on the campus as the uh, Muslim activists came charging onto the campus shooting uh, the students. Apparently, um, it's the ECWA, the Evangelical Church of West Africa uh, Seminary there in Nigeria. Apparently, that seminary has often been viewed in the midst of all the violence as a safe place where people in the community have come uh, to try to find some refuge, and yet uh, that refuge has been broken. Uh, the last I heard this morning, because we had a couple of, uh, of missionary kids home and in the 11 o'clock service, was as, as of yesterday, they thought a lot of the violence had, had uh, decreased and a lot of uh, that military force had been brought to bear. But, but I know that the letters and emails I've gotten have asked us as communities uh, to pray. Uh, as the, as the Bible tells us to, for our brothers and sisters who are there, for others who are not yet our brothers and sisters in Christ at least, and for those who are in authority. I mean, I keep wondering how on earth uh, would I make decisions in such challenging times. So we'll uphold people in prayer. So let's pray together. Father, we gather here on this uh, wonderful and beautiful Sunday evening and have the opportunity to hear this great music of the season uh, to remember that the future is in your hand as well as the past and the present as we come on this first Sunday of Advent in which uh, prophets spoke and what they said actually happened in the coming of Jesus. And yet, Father, though we know you are in control of all things so that we come and praise you for that, at the same time things happen in our world that we cannot understand. So much of this makes no sense to us and you, you know that. And you have told us as your people that when we gather and we hear about these sorts of things around us in the world, we shouldn't ignore them, but we should gather together and bring our hearts and voices together in prayer for people who are going through difficult and challenging times. So, Father, now, though we don't quite know how we should pray, we do take this time to uphold the people in Mumbai. I pray for those who have been given authority to try to bring about peace I thank you for the situation as it now stands in comparison to the way it was this past week. But in the same way, Father, we know that because that has happened with such precision and such planning that so many people in that city and indeed throughout that entire country are now filled with fear and anxiety and wondering what the future will hold. Many people are also experiencing loss. We uphold them before you, Father. Somehow may they know your mercy and your comfort in these days. And I pray for them, Father, that somehow also uh, they may turn their faces toward you and find that that your word is true, that you are there, and that you are a refuge and a strength and a present help, even in times of trouble. 
So many have experienced that in the past, and I pray for those in Mumbai now that they may experience it in their present. Father, we pray for their nation's leaders and for the leaders of that city too, as they have to make decisions. Father, that you may give to them a wisdom to know what to do and courage to do what is right so that peace and justice may prevail in that city. Father, also we turn our minds toward Nigeria where we have so many brothers and sisters in Christ, so many who have studied right across the street here at uh, Forest Seminary and so many of them going through such difficult and challenging days where the violence has been going on for a long time but we keep hearing that it's escalating. Father, we uphold them before you. We pray that you would protect the people of that country. We pray somehow, Father, that peace may prevail. We pray for those who are in leadership of that country, that you may enable them to know what they should do as people are so divided from one another uh, that they may be able to be at peace within that country. Father, particularly for the seminary at Jos, uh, for the... uh, Evangelical Church of West Africa Seminary there that has experienced so much violence in the past few days. We uphold people and ask that that they may know your peace, your comfort, and know that for us as believers, that there is nothing that can separate us from what is eternal. Nothing can separate us from your love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that the hope that we as believers have to hold on to is that even death itself has been swallowed up through the resurrection of Jesus. Father, may those not simply be words. May it not simply be a doctrine that they believe with their minds. May they find the truth and the hope in that during these difficult days. Lead them, we pray. May your blessing be upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremy, am I on? Where are you, Jeremy? So I'm on now? Aha, okay. Good. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to uh, two different texts. One of them is perhaps a more likely text for what's called an Advent Sunday. Traditionally, as churches throughout the world have had these these times of anticipation, Advent means just building up the anticipation for the time where Christ came. So traditionally, churches all over the world have had four different Sundays, and the first one usually is called Prophets Sundays. As we think back to those who came before Jesus, often centuries before, and foretold where he would come, what he would be like, And then actually when Christ came, people should have identified it in the light of the prophecies. Many didn't, uh, but that's one of the things that we look at at this time of year. And so today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, just for a moment, and hold on to that. And then we'll turn over to James chapter 4 and read a very different kind of a text. Okay, first Hebrews chapter 1. This is uh, speaking about the God who can engage in prophecy. Verse 1. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over all things and through whom he made the universe. So here's the God who can give prophecies that actually happen. Then in James chapter four, a very different kind of a text talks about people who think that we can control the future and it gives a very sharp word of warning about thinking that we can, can uh, be the ones who are in control of all that happens. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, and we'll spend a year there, carry on business, and we'll make money. Why, 
you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Uh, what is your life? Uh, it is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And this is the word of God. Now, back when I was in college, which was a while ago, I'll have to tell you, we had a name for a whole a group of people who seemed to be doing well financially. So many of them were in the world of technology. And the word probably you've heard was yuppies. Do you remember that word a long time ago? Created in the 70s? Yuppies. Young, upwardly mobile uh, professionals. People everyone anticipated would do well, or at least they hoped would do well. Everybody wanting to be on this upward track of financial strength. Then one day in, in the 1980s, 1987, what was called Black Tuesday, uh, we had to rename these same, group, these same group of people. They had to be renamed puppies, previously upwardly mobile professionals. Because what happened was, perhaps some of you remember, and perhaps some of you who have studied economics know, the stock market one day in the United States dropped 20 and nobody, nobody expected it. It seemed like a different day in October, so many years before, in 1929, in which the beginnings of the Depression took place, and on what was then called a Black Monday, the stock market in just six hours, six hours, dropped 13%. All sorts of measures, those of you who study economics, all sorts of measures were put into place so that that sort of drop would never happen again. And yet in 1987, in the midst of strength, when nobody possibly expected it, it happened again and it was worse than in 1929. Now, of course, here we are in 2008. And even though we have had measures put into place to keep the market from having those kind of free falls all in one day, you read the papers, I'm sure you've experienced what's taken place over the longer period of time. The drop has been greater than in either one of those two time periods. In fact, in some ways, it's been even more catastrophic, don't you think? Uh, because it's not just happened on Wall Street. It's not just happened in New York. It's happened all over the world because the, our world has become sort of a, a global community. I mean, you're aware of that, aren't you? So that it felt like, as I've been reading the papers and following what's been happening in our markets and with our banks and with our real estate, you know what it feels like to me? It feels like uh, mountain climbers who are by a rope attached to one another so that as things fell on Wall Street in New York, they went down in London and on continental Europe and all across Asia and Tokyo and Hong Kong until we've come to the situation now where people are really wondering once again what is the future going to hold for the economies of this entire world. Now, it's been interesting for me to read analysts. I don't know if you like to do that, read the uh, editorials. But the, the uh, analysts were swift to come up with uh, the people who were to blame. Uh, first people to blame were the uh, people in real estate, right? Uh, the, the inappropriate mortgages, so many of them out here in uh, Southern California. It, it, it was their fault. 
others were saying, well, no, 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 it's partly their fault, but it's also the fault of these greedy CEOs in the big corporations that you follow just these past few weeks when the heads of the big auto companies went into Washington, D.C., and they were given one hard time, not only by the politicians, but by, uh, by the entire press. It's their fault. They're so greedy. If they hadn't been that way, the, the, everything wouldn't have collapsed. Or, or especially in this past year's uh, political campaign, uh, people blame the politicians, uh, the president, uh, Congress. Did you follow I mean, in almost all of the campaigns, Uh, The campaign would be like this. People were not on their watch in Washington, D.C., but elect me and I will be on my watch. I'll be able to make I'll be able to make a difference. I I started to think about that and think about, you know, in 1987, I was pastoring right up the coast in the San Luis Obispo area, a little town called Arroyo Grande. So many of our people were uh, were devastated as they lost so much of, of, of what belonged to them. We, we had a lot of retired people in that community, and so all of their investments, boy, they were shaken in just one day. But I remember pulling up the Wall Street Journal on the day after uh, the big free fall that took place, and there was uh, an article in which a man was quoted. He was a financier, a very successful one on Wall Street. Well, on the, that day of the uh, fall of the stock market was driving into Manhattan, and you may remember, the day that the market fell, there was terrible weather in New York. It's not unusual, but it must be especially bad on that particular day. And he said, as I drove into Manhattan, came into the island, uh, I remembered seeing those dark, ominous clouds. I saw the rain starting to fall. I felt the wind starting to blow. And I began to wonder whether this might be an omen of bad things. He said, I started thinking about that little man who always stands on the street corners here of Manhattan with a sandwich board attached to him that says, the end is near. (laughs) Well, he was sort of joking about that because I can't imagine that a Wall Street successful financier thinks in those apocalyptic terms. But as I was thinking about this first week of Advent, I began to think that maybe there is a little bit more truth to what he was talking about than we might want to admit. I began to think that maybe there is more at stake than just temporary things. That that maybe God is actually trying to say something to us as a society and maybe to even us who claim to be followers of Jesus, but who sometimes put our confidence in something other than God himself who also are drawn very strongly to putting our confidence in our own strength, uh, in our possessions, in our careers, and in our investments. So today as we come to this Advent Sunday talking about prophets, here's what I thought I would do. This very notion of prophecy implies that we believe that the God of the Bible is in control of the future. Have you thought about that? He's in in control of the future to the extent that the Bible says that we can have prophecies about where Jesus would be born, where Messiah would, would, would come into this world, what would happen in terms of persecution against him, uh, things that would happen in this world that should make the coming of Messiah identifiable. That implies that God is one who is sovereign over the future. And so as we think about the world now, In what way is God sovereign over the future and still allow such instability to happen so that we're not quite sure what we should do? 
And that brings me to this, this text in the book of James, in which he turns to people who are putting their confidence in financial things, and yet still claiming to be Christians, and saying your confidence is misplaced. I don't know if you read the book of James very often. You know, he's a straight shooter. He's a plain speaker. You know what he reminds me of? In the 1980s, I lived in northern Germany, and I had to get used to this. Uh, the northern Germans just told you what they thought. And I eventually came to just love that. I never had to, to be afraid that they were going to be talking about my back, behind my back because they'd talk straight to my face. And that's the way that James is. So that he turned to people who claimed to be followers of the Lord, and yet it was clear that their, their trust was in their possessions. So that he would say in chapter 5, verse 1, Now listen, you rich people. You should weep and wail because of misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten into your clothes. I felt like, is he writing in 2008 the United States and actually in a world in which so many people think that confidence is to be found in, in wealth and in our investments? Uh, bottom line, when people stop and try to think about why, why have this, these economic uh, Roller coasters been happening in our country. They'll, they'll try to find it in the mortgage industry or in corporate CEOs or, or, in, or in our politicians. But bottom line, the most important factor in the economy of our world is what is called confidence. Consumer confidence. When we are confident that things are going well, then we spend money, then we make investments, then we start new businesses. But that, that bubble of confidence in the fact that we can make things so well, it just seems like it's popped so easily. So that the moment that that confidence is broken, almost anybody says, we don't think things are going to go well, then everything sinks. Do you know what James would be saying to us in our day? He would say, as you look into the future, uh, your confidence as a follower of Jesus should never be in anything in this world. I think in his hard-hitting sort of a way, he would say this. Listen, the gifts that you, should, you have, train to use them. Uh, the jobs that you have, work hard to be the most competent person that you can be in those jobs. Uh, the resources that you have been given, be wise in finding the best kind of bank to invest it in. Uh, purchase the, the safest and best kind of stocks or bonds or mutual funds that you might find. But know this that those things will never truly be securities. They are not secure. The best bank will fail. Can you believe it? The Laymans, the Freddie Macs, uh, the, the, the city corps, the city group, the, the, the strongest banks in our entire world are seen to be so fragile in the midst of the world because bottom line, as Christians, we believe that there are only a couple of things in which we can have absolute confidence. And they all have to do with God himself. They have to do with the fact that God is one who will fulfill his word. And when he says something will happen, it will. And that you and I someday we're going to have to stand before God and give account of how we live. And, and the way I have thought about it is this. At least as I've gotten to meet Christians and wonderful people all over the world. When you and I stand before God, we are going to see that those worldly possessions are less significant than we see them to be in 2008 and that the things that really matter are what Jesus called treasures in heaven. 
And often it's people who have almost no treasures on earth who seem to me to have made investments that really matter, lived lives that really count, and probably in the eyes of God have greater treasures in heaven than many of us who have been given so much. So if you have a Bible, I want you to keep it to the book of James. I'm just going to try to make one basic point. The one basic point on this Advent Sunday is that I want to talk about this precious commodity, though limited in this world, of time that God has given to us. I wanted to call this message the arrogance of our blackberries. That's what I wanted to call it. Or, or what I, I would have wanted to call it in the past, the arrogance of our daytimers. That I can just take out my schedule book and I can say, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to live my life and make all of those decisions without any reference to God. Do you see how James begins it in verse 13? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, this is what we're going to do. We will go into this or that city. You know what? We're, I'm going to go spend a year over there because I like that place better than this one. I'm going to conduct business there. And when I go there, like I've always done, I'm going to make money. Now, before I look at this, I have two clarifications. I've talked about this subject before. Actually, my dissertation when I was doing my studies was in the use of possessions. And every time I talk about this, I have two comments that are made that I'm going to clarify up front. Number one. Uh, James is not attacking private enterprise here. He's not a socialist. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about which economic systems would be better than others in spite of some of the books. that It really doesn't. But that's not what he is. All business in James's day was private business. In fact, all business in the Bible's days, it all was private business, almost all family business. So he's not talking about getting rid of, 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 uh, of uh, private enterprise. And secondly, he's not against planning for the future. Um, because the Bible is filled with telling us that God has given us the ability to think and to look into the future. And a part of the image of God in us is that we are able to make those kind of plans and, and pursue goals. The book of Proverbs is filled with that. So that's not what he's talking about. So what is he talking about? He is saying to people, especially, and I, and I tell you, to people like me, and I'm guessing to many of you here in the warehouse, who like to make plans, uh, who like to set goals, uh, who have often found some success in making plans and setting goals, perhaps even success in, in a career or in your education or in your business. He's saying that you and I, though those are good things to do, he's saying that you and I are susceptible to a particular kind of weakness. And, and that is this, that we become self-centered rather than God-centered. You see, verse 16 is where he takes this this up. He says, let me talk to you about this. As for you, you boast and brag. That sort of boasting, using the same word twice, is evil. Now, here we're coming into the Christmas season. Um, have, have you noticed that we often take certain careers and stereotype them negatively uh, here in the U.S.? I think the one, I've seen a few of you here, the one that gets the most negative stereotypes in our day is the uh, as being a lawyer, don't, don't you think? There, I, I used to head up a law school, and so I heard law, lawyer jokes all my life. I found that lawyers like to tell them about themselves, but they don't like others to tell them about them. But, but I often think that criticism of lawyers is so unfair because most people who go into that profession, especially those who are Christians, go into it because they, they've sensed God's call to that, 
because they believe, and I think rightly believe, that that profession is one that can be utilized to bring about justice and compassion in this world if they exercise it appropriately. But when you come to Christmas time, there's another profession that's stereotyped much more negatively. Do you know which one it is? I I'd never realized this until just a few years ago. I was sitting with a group of businessmen friends of mine watching some, some Christmas movies, and one of them made the point that in every Christmas movie that comes out, the bad guy's always a business person. Uh, business and finance are always the rotters in these things. Uh, a Christmas carol. <coughs> Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, Elf. <laughs> Will Ferrell's father is the one who's just such a rotten person. Uh, it's a wonderful life. It's, it's the bank and the bankers who are just such, such, such rotten kind of, kind of... Even Miracle on 34th... See, I'm getting riled up about something like movies. Even the Miracle on 34th Street has the person who's so focused on business that they can't do anything else. Now, let me tell you, I've had a privilege to know so many Christians who are in the world of business. And I'm guessing that there are some of you here that God is calling into finance and business. And so many of the most generous sacrificial givers I've ever met are people who have come into business and recognized that living for just their business doesn't do it, and so they use what God entrusts to them for things that last forever. So I, I want to say that up front. But having said that, those who have done well in leadership, and especially in fields like business and finance, are very susceptible to this matter of becoming self-directed with regard to the future. This phrase, as it is, you boast, all of this is boasting. Uh, the, the Greek word that, that's translated in, in our Bibles is a very interesting one. It really is, has to do with something that has a lot of air and no substance. It was used sometimes for like quack physicians, like those in the early part of our country who would carry out the, do you remember these, the elixir? Have you ever seen those old movies? The elixir that if you buy this elixir, it will cure warts, uh, baldness, and prickly heat. It can do everything. And you know it's big talk with no substance whatsoever. What James is saying is this. Those who think that you can make plans that are absolutely certain about the future. We're going to do this and nothing will stop me. I'm going to make money and nothing will possibly happen. I'm going to invest it in this bank and nothing can happen to that bank. He says that's big talk, but empty words. And I think that what we're seeing here in 2008 absolutely confirms that what he says is indeed the truth. See, that is a weakness that we have, that, that we presume a number of things. And I jotted down a few that I just want you to think about. What James gets at is when we start thinking that, that I am the one who determines the future, especially when we're people who set goals and we begin to see that we're good at setting them and at, at accomplishing them, and we start leaving God out, we presume several things. We presume upon the availability of time. We don't even know what tomorrow holds, James says. We don't even know if we're going to have a tomorrow. Instead, what we ought to pray is, if we're alive, then we will live that day to the full. It simply presumes that we're going to have a tomorrow. It presumes, secondly, that we have the power of ultimate choice. without regard to the fact that maybe someone else has something much better for us to do. And it may be different. And in the short run, it may be a bit painful to go his way rather than ours. And thirdly, it presumes upon success. 
This is where, as you've experienced success, it becomes more the way James puts it is, this is what you say, we're going to do this tomorrow, and we will make money. Now, I don't know all of you well enough to know if this will apply to you, but I'll ask you to believe me on this one. If you get into roles of leadership, into roles of some influence, and and you're able to set plans and, and, and develop strategic plans and lead others in them and find them to be successful you begin to think oh, that you're almost invincible. That I can come back into this place and do exactly the same thing. It's going to happen once again because it's happened before. It's confidence. And many people say it's that kind of confidence that's always going to succeed. But it's the kind of confidence that James would say is placed in the wrong one. It's placed in ourselves. He puts it, you boast and brag. You start having your life revolve around yourself. So do you see it? When we experience some success, In planning for the future, we are vulnerable to thinking that the future is in our hands. And the Bible turns to us and says, you don't even know what tomorrow will hold. Well, if we're going to live Christianly, when we think about the future, what should we do? And as your pastor, I just tried to think. I was was in Italy until uh, Thursday. Uh, Our son, Brandon, is studying art there, so Chris and I were there. So as I was flying back and knowing I was going to get to speak about this today... I try to think, what are the most practical things I might say to us in a world where I'm sure many of you are touched by jobs that have been lost, investments that seem to have fallen apart. What would I want to say to us in a time like this where so many in our church family and here in the warehouse, I'm sure, but throughout our entire church family have experienced such challenging times? And I just wrote down four things. See if you find them to be helpful. When we gather in worship, in times like these, and believe in the kind of God that we've been singing about, we first need to take time each time to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. To acknowledge that God is the one who is in control. That we look at our lives so often, and this is what's happening in Mumbai and Nigeria, and actually in so many of the lives of people who are experiencing financial loss in our own country. And it feels like Everything is out of control. We we can't even envision that it's headed in a good direction. And we come into this place and we hold on to some of those verses that our brothers and sisters throughout the world have held on to in tough times always like Romans 8, 28, that, that says actually we know that God is at work in all things. We know that God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. When we gather in a time like this where it just has felt like everything is out of control, you cannot figure out what God is doing. It it doesn't just have to be an economic loss. It can be the loss of a loved one, a loss of a friendship, a loss of a relationship that you hoped would culminate in something and it seems to have been broken and the whole world seems to be out of control. But we gather in this place and we worship. Do you know what worship really means? So simply, it just means putting God at center stage. In most of our lives, everything else seems to be at center stage. And, and when those things seem, whether, whether it's our finances or our careers or, or relationships, when those things are put at the very center and they start falling apart, our whole world falls apart. So we come into church and we engage in worship and we see God at the center and we say, I don't understand what you're doing, but I will trust you. That's what they had to do before Jesus came. You remember that prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6? The people who are walking in darkness, they didn't know where things were headed, have now seen a great light. 
They had wished that light had come a whole lot easier. Don't you ever feel like that? When you go through challenging, difficult times, you wish that light would break in right now. But God calls upon us to gather in times like we have this evening and, and, and ask ourselves, do we really believe what we've been singing about? That God is God and that he is in control of all and that this God is good so that we will say, though I don't quite see what you are doing, I will wait upon you and I will find my confidence not in anything else or in any institution in this world, but in you. I, I pray that as you've gathered here that this will be an evening of worship for you and part of that worship is acknowledging God's sovereignty. Second, and it's just so related to it, this is so simple, but, but I hope it's helpful. When we gather here, we need to take time to acknowledge our own limitations. Uh, any Christian's already done that. I mean, you, you don't even become a Christian until you come to this point where you and I say, I can't do it myself. I have, I've made mistakes, I've failed, I've sinned, I need forgiveness. And, and then we come and we read this, what's called gospel, good news, that God knows that about us and loves us anyway. That even while we were sinners, he loved us and Christ died for us. And so acknowledging, isn't that what made us Christians? Acknowledging my limitations, I've come and just given myself to him and he's taken me. Can, can you believe it? So in one sense, we just have to come back again. And when everything seems out of control, we, we acknowledge that we can't do it all ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we develop this attitude of, I can do nothing. It's not these self-help books that we kind of stand in front of the mirror and just say, I'm great. Anything I want to do, I can do. I'm, I think I can, I think I can, like the old children's book, until I really think I can, and then I'll get it. It's, that's bizarre. That, that, that's just ridiculous. But on the other side, it's not this thing, I can do nothing. God has given us so much ability God has got the gifts that we have, the talents that we have, but we need to freely use them. But always, as James puts it, submit it to his will. Instead, he says, if we should say, God, if it's your will, I will live tomorrow and I'll value that tomorrow and I will do this tomorrow in accordance with the way that I've given my life to you. I began to learn this in a new way a few years ago, you know, before becoming a pastor here at the Lake Avenue Church, I had the privilege of being uh, a president uh, of a school in Chicago. And you know what a president does of a university, don't you? Uh, people say he begs and lives in a big house. Uh, and, and there is a measure of truth in that. Uh, I don't know if you always live in a big house, but you do have to go out and try to get people to support uh, the students and, and what you were doing. And I remember when I started into this, I'd been a pastor for 17 years. So this matter of going up to people who have uh, significant means and asking them for significant gifts, well, I was kind of wimpish about doing this. And one of the first people that I went and talked with was a good friend, a man of significant means, and a, who really believed in what we were doing there at the school. And as I was kind of waffling around the issue, he said, Greg, you need to stop for just a moment. You need to learn something about Christians who have been entrusted with resources. He said those who are not just nominal Christians, but real Christians who have been entrusted with resources have learned that those resources don't last and that they in and of themselves don't make an eternal difference. So you need to know this. If you can come and show me how my temporary resources can be used for something that really lasts and that really matters, it will be a joy for me to give and it should be a joy for you to ask. 
I tell you, after he said that to me, it became much more a joy for me to ask him, at least. <laughs> but isn't there just something that's so, so wise about that? We acknowledge our limitations, and even if we've experienced success, we, we don't control the future. So, so we see that. And we always come and say, Father, what I have, I thank you for. And if you take it away, well, I'll, I'll keep living for you anyway. If it's your will, I'm going to have an opportunity to live, and I'm going to, I'm going to live it for you. Let, let me tell you something that I've found to be so helpful in my life. Um, at the very early days of the United States, uh, when you would go to any town meeting or any political meeting, they would have the, the announcements that usually would be in the public square of when and where it would take place, and at the bottom, they would put the letters DV. Do we have that up there? There. It's almost unbelievable for us in, in 21st century America to believe that at our announcements for political meetings and town meetings, at the bottom of almost each one of them, you will find these little letters at the very bottom right-hand corner, DV. Deo, it's Latin, Deo Volente. Deo for God. Volente, like volition, if, if God wills. We are going to have a gathering of the town council, Deo Valente. If, I wonder if they put this under all the announcements in Sacramento. What, what, what do you think? Jeremy, even, or, or well, maybe you pointed this out to me yesterday, that even on our Christmas announcements, we forgot to put DV on the bottom. We're going to have all these meetings, if God wills. I've come to the conclusion that one of the most practical things that you and I can do, if you keep the old daytimers, the old journals where you write in them, it's easy to do. At the bottom of every page, uh, affecting every decision that you make, make those plans. God's given you the ability to do it. Be strategic about it. But at the bottom, say, God, my life is yours. This is what I'm going to do. DV. If God wills, I don't know how to do that in these electronic devices. This morning when I talked about it, I had every, everybody that's under 30 came up and said, it's easy. Here's what you do. Boom, 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 boom. I said, I'll give you mine and you do it for me. OK, but maybe you can figure that out. But do you see that if you can do that, I think every day it will be a reminder to us that God is. That God is involved in every day of our lives and that we are not just Christians in name. We're really Christians. Father, I will do it if you will. See, it's an acknowledgement of our limitations. Third, and just briefly, I think it's good for us to acknowledge our, our mortality. This little phrase where James says, what is your life? You're just a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. could be so discouraging. But I'm telling you, it's true. The longer I live, the faster days go by. Um, I, I just can't believe it. Uh, I remember when I was in college, I, I couldn't believe when I graduated. Any of you experienced that? You can't believe that those years have gone by so fast. They go faster by now. Uh, I told you, Chris and I were just visiting our son Brandon in Italy. I had been looking forward to this all fall, planning for it, and now I'm already back home. What happened to those days? What happened to those days? They just go so fast. But if we'll take time to acknowledge that that is true, that, that if we just live life for ourselves, it's going to be gone and our lives don't make any real, real difference so that we can live every day as a gift from God. Every day takes on a new energy. We say, Father, if it is your will, I'll even have the opportunity to live tomorrow 
And if I have the opportunity to live for mo- to, tomorrow, I'll live it to the full. And I want to live it in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. It's a countercultural way to live. Um, in Italy, we only got to Florence and, and to Rome. But as I was flying back thinking about my sermon, um, I was thinking about a story from Pompeii. Uh, in Pompeii in the first century, uh, there was a, a volcanic eruption that sent lava all the way through the, the major part of the city. And if you go and visit there now, there is still a skeleton of a shopkeeper outside what was once his shop. He's all encrusted with the lava and he's holding on with his hands to money that's still there with lava around it. And in the other arm, he has his, his pans that, that are his goods to sell. I'm quite sure he never sold a one of them. It shows you, it's such, isn't that a graphic illustration of holding on to something in this world that isn't worth holding on to instead of trying to make sure that our lives are lived, investing in what really matters. Living as God would have us to live, caring about the people he brings across our paths, trying to be the people that God would have us to be. I, I think it's good if we say every day of our lives, Father, this day is the day you have given And I want to live it in a way that honors you. That brings lasting benefit to these short lives. And then finally, this word. In this world where life goes by so fast and we don't know what tomorrow will hold with certainty, still we should live according to what we know. We should become people who understand how God has taught us to live and then make conscious uh, efforts To live that way. And that's what this last verse in our text today talks about. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do, but he doesn't do it, he sins. A lot of people read that verse and they just say, what on earth does that have to say about this text? And I'll tell you, it has a whole lot to say about this text. Because sometimes when when you come to the warehouse and the pastor gets up and brings a message like this, you say, why on earth are you making such a big deal about this? making sure you live God's way rather than your own. After all, uh, it's not such a bad thing if I just live as I want to live. I'm an American. I have freedom of choice. Who are you to say it's a big deal to live God's way rather than my own? Well, let me tell you, those of us who leave God out of our lives, who, who don't take time to find out what God's priorities are and just conduct our lives for our own priorities, which usually end up us trying to become successful, only ourselves, We avoid some of the most important things in this world. And often we do more damage than good. What kind of things do we avoid? Uh, I wrote down just a few. I I think that when our lives become self-directed, self-centered rather than God-centered, we avoid prayer. Because really, bottom line, prayer is submission to God. And if we're going to run our own lives, we're not going to want to engage in that kind of prayer, right? I I think also we'll we'll, we'll avoid the life of the church. Uh, I'm so glad that you are here because it shows me that you're not avoiding that. But whenever the pastor gets up and says, but the life of the church means more than just coming into one service. It means us getting into one another's lives. It, it means touching people's lives so that you can correct people and also encourage people and pray for people and love people. And you should be serving in some ways. The, the, the first thing is we, we, we pull back and say, but wait a minute. You don't know all the things I have to do in my business. That takes priority over this and suddenly we're not serving and our lives aren't making a difference. We avoid avoid the life of the church. Third, so many times we avoid our families. 
I can just hear it. It's, it's one of these, these, these phrases that just permeates so many broken families. No, uh, I'm not going to get home again before the children go to bed. I know it's been three weeks since I've been home, but we have this contract that we're working on and it just has to be done. Uh, maybe you can feel yourself saying that sort of thing and it feels all right at the moment, but family is left behind. Or sometimes we avoid friends. Oh, sorry, Dan. Sorry we can't get together yet again this month, but you know, things are hopping at the office. And What I'm trying to say, if I can make it clear, is something like what Stephen Covey was getting at in his book, First Things First, I don't know if you've read any of the Covey material, but he says that you should identify what your priorities are. And then he says you t- should take out your schedule book and make sure that your schedule book really reflects your priorities. Now, what he misses in that is that we are, should not be the ones who set the priorities. What I would be calling us to do is pulling out this book so that we can know what we ought to do, finding out what God's priorities are, Uh, praying about them, seeking for them, then taking out our schedule book and trying to make sure that the way we use our time actually reflects the values of God. That's what James is getting at. The one who knows the good we ought to do but then doesn't do it is going to engage in doing wrong, is going to sin. And so he calls upon us in days of uncertainty to know that the only one who is certain about the future is God himself. But we have the opportunity always to plan according to the priorities God gives and to try to place our schedules and our time in doing things his way rather, rather than our own. And then, if he throws us a curveball and something is very different from what we had planned or expected, we're not devastated by it. We're not filled with anxiety. We simply say, this must be what you will, and I will trust you. Well, there is my message to you this uh, first Sunday evening of, of Advent. It is my prayer that as we think about a future that in the eyes of our world seems to be very, very uncertain, that you'll be able to leave this place with that confidence that comes, that though it may be uncertain to us, it is not uncertain to God, that you and I don't even know what tomorrow holds, but he holds tomorrow. And that where we think that we can control what happens in the future, we find out the world gets out of control until we come back into this place and worship and acknowledge that he is in control and that he is worthy of our trust. I suppose the thing that I would uh, almost most want you to do is to take some time during this week and take out those schedules that you have. And at the bottom of each page... At the bottom of each section, if you can figure out how to do this, write those letters, uh, DV. Can you put that back up? There it is, Jamie. Uh, Jeremy. DV. Um, that tomorrow is in God's hands. So that if I live tomorrow, it's a gift from God. And the plans that I make, I will make them. But it is always if God wills. And I believe if we do this, uh, our lives will have much more confidence and we will bring glory to God. Let me lead us in prayer. In a moment of of silence, as your eyes are closed, maybe there are some burdens in your life, anxiety that is there because of all of these things happening in our world. Could be loss of relationships. Could be that the job that you have is in jeopardy. 
It could be a loss of a loved one. There's so many things. Will you take just a few moments and give that to God? Tell Him that though you don't understand what He's doing, that you will trust Him. That you will trust Him. And our Father, I want to pray for each one who is here in the warehouse this evening. That somehow they may know that you are and that you are present here with us. And I pray that whatever each one is facing, that he or she will surely find that your word is not just words, it is true. That you are a refuge and a strength and a very present help whatever happens in this world. May we know this to be true in Jesus' name. Amen.